teaching pastor at Journey Church in Brentwood, Tennessee. Prior to that, he pastored at several megachurches in Orange County, California, desiring to seek out a life that more closely mirrored Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. In 2015, he founded a podcast called Voxology, formerly known as The Vox Podcast with Mike Erie. These weekly episodes are homes for the spiritually homeless that thrive on the voices of curious, intelligent listeners and guests all over the world. On the nerdy side of things, Mike has been an avid gamer since childhood and currently spends far too much time playing Destiny 2. Please welcome Mike Erie to the Nerd Culture Ministry Summit. See, I'm important. That's awesome. Hey, good morning. Man, it's great to see you guys. It really is. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about how Jesus uh, was and is present with people. And so um, we're going to spend about 25 minutes doing a bunch of Bible stuff, although we just went to church. Can we agree with that? Oh, my goodness. Um, and if I need to adjust this or you guys need to adjust this, come on up and adjust it because I can hear that it's a little. Yeah, come on. Let's go. No, this off the scruff? I mean, I shaved two days ago. I thought I would be fine. Handheld? Okay. Okay. Handhelds are the worst, but I'm glad to do it. Yeah, now I feel like a real preacher. I got a towel. So. You know it's real. You know it's real. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about how Jesus is present. So we're going to do about 20 minutes or so of just a bunch of Bible and then about 10 minutes or so implications, and then we'll do some Q's and some A's if you'd like. So um, Jesus, uh, as you know, was involved in a culture war, much like the culture war in America today, right? The Bible verses were being thrown uh, um, by different factions against other factions. Judgmentalism, condemnation was just in the water. The pressing issue for Jesus and Israel in his day was the occupation of the land by the Romans. And it was, it was unthinkable that God would allow his chosen people in their promised land to sit under the rule of the idolatrous Romans. Um, not only were they pagans, but they preached a false gospel about the divinity of Rome and the divinity of Caesar. And so there were many different cultural answers about how do we deal with this problem? Some um, advocated, if you can't beat them, join them. And so we have groups, uh, primarily in the Jewish leadership, the Sadducees among them, who advocated cooperation. They benefited financially from Rome being and staying in power. There were also folks who saw the corrupt nature of Jewish leadership and moved out into, de into the desert in monk-like communities. Um, you, we know them as the Essenes, the community that, that wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls. And, and their focus there was total withdrawal from Jewish culture. They worshiped using a different calendar um, and so on. Obviously, there were some who advocated violence, that the, to deal with the violent, you have to be violent. And so um, the, right around Jesus' day, a group was beginning to form called the Zealot Party. And the Zealots were known as Dagger Men. It was Sicario. If you've ever seen the movie, that's a, that's a Hebrew word that, that was used of these Dagger Men who would carry 
weaponry on them and then assassinate tax collectors and other Roman officials. They weren't very influential in Jesus' day, but within a generation, they will provoke Rome to war and they will destroy, Rome will then destroy Jerusalem. The Pharisees are the ones probably we're most familiar with. The Pharisees saw this as a spiritual problem. If we went into exile because we were not faithful to God, then God is still chastising us because we're not faithful to him. And so Jesus was sociologically most like a Pharisee. But in terms of who, who he's antagonistic most toward, it's the Pharisee party, as it turns out. And I want to look at the place where the culture war was waged. So in our society, one of the places culture war is waged is bathrooms. Who gets to go into what bathroom? In Jesus' day, who you eat with was a, a place where the culture war was fought. So Dalton, fire up Luke. Not our Luke, but the Luke. <laughs> After this, Jesus went out and saw a... Yeah, how popular were those guys? No. First of all, they were Jewish, right? So these were people who cooperated or collaborated, excuse me, with the Romans to ensure that the vast majority of, of Jews were so poor they couldn't even fulfill the law by going to Jerusalem three times a year, buying a sacrifice. These were people, so if you lived in like Nazi-occupied France, um, and you were Jewish, the only people you hated more than the Nazis were the Jews that were helping them, right? So these people were despised. In fact, there's later rabbinical writing that talks about how they are literally the most despicable of all people. You'll see in a couple of texts in a moment where tax collectors are separated out from sinners. It's sinners and tax collectors. Like sinners is one thing, and then tax collectors is like, even worse. So after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. So he was in the process of collecting taxes. Jesus said to him, uh, Jesus said to him, follow me. And Levi got up. Evidently, Jesus said, oh, follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything and followed him. Levi held a great banquet. And this would be very, very public in ancient Israel. There were no such thing as private dinners. There was a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with him. Now, who's the only person that's going to go, the only kind of people that are going to go eat with a tax collector? Other tax collectors, right? No one else will have them. So Jesus is surrounding himself with the most notoriously sinful people that Jewish culture could imagine. But the Pharisees... And the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to the disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Again, there's the two categories. Why do you eat with them? Eating in the ancient world connoted um, intimacy, sharing of status, um, acceptance, belonging. So it was kind of a big deal to the Pharisees who see that the reason Israel is in trouble is because they're not obeying the law of God. Here comes this pretend Messiah hanging out with all the wrong people in defiance of God's law. So of course they complained about that. Jesus answered, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to 
repentance. Now, let's talk about the Pharisees a little bit. And again, lots of slides, sorry about that, but I wanna, I wanna thoroughly establish one point that you probably already agree with and then talk about how it applies to what it is that we're doing every day. So for the Pharisees, the Pharisees, their goal was something called resurrection. That was short for God's plan of salvation. And it included many different facets. It included, of course, resurrection of the dead. But it also included the judgment of the wicked, the salvation of the righteous, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on Israel, the vindication of Israel from her enemy, and the cleansing of the land from all foreigners. Right? That whole program was called resurrection. And this was what the Pharisees hoped for. This is what they worked for. This is what they prayed for. All of their zeal was based on seeing that come to pass. So resurrection included physical resurrection, but it was all the things that God promised to do for Israel happening at once, that was what they wanted to see happen. Are you with me so far? The obstacles to that happening, <laughs> the Romans who are in our land, and then all of these doggone sinners. Now, sinners was a social category in the first century, not a moral category. In other words, the, the Pharisees didn't look around and say, well, we're the only ones that are perfect. No, sinners were people who, because of circumstance or disobedience or they were too poor, could not fulfill the law of Torah. And so they were a blight on the land. And so the Pharisees saw fellow Israelites who were sinful and the presence of Romans to be the issue. So what did the Pharisees um, advocate? And this is where, please, please follow me here, because this is where Jesus stands out in contrast. They wanted all of Israel to repent and accept the definition of holiness the Pharisees advocated for. If Israel were holy, then God would come and do his resurrection thing. Kick out the Romans, vindicate Israel, um, pour out the Spirit, all of the things they dreamt for. If it, it, the issue was Israel just isn't holy enough. And so, and they defined holiness as separation. Unholiness is contagious, so you have to separate from all the things that aren't holy. So it mattered who you ate with, who you, what homes you went into, whether you touched unclean things or engaged in unclean actions, whatever it was, they were advocating separation from it. They believed that you had to repent in order to belong to the true Israel. Repentance came first. And in order to make that happen, they advocated something called fencing the law. And fencing the law is adding, so you have 613 commands in the Old Testament, and they added thousands of other rules and regulations around those. So like if one of the 10 commandments was do not touch this table, they would, they would add a fence around that commandment by saying, don't even be within three feet of the table. Don't even look at the table. Don't be in the same room as the table. And their focus was on dietary purity, who you ate with, and Sabbath keeping. And that's where, of course, Jesus gets into all sorts of trouble with him. Are you with me? I know this is a lot for nine in the morning. Okay, we're just gonna plow. We're gonna keep plowing. Hopefully, at some point, you will say, oh, I see where they brought him. You may not see that yet, and that's just fine. That's the goal. All right, table fellowship, who you ate with, how you ate, what you ate, 
was a way the Pharisees saw Israel becoming holy. All right, the culture war was around the table. So for, is, for the Pharisees, we have to be holy. What's holy mean? Being separated from everything that's not holy. How do we do that? Well, they took all of the laws about how the priests were to eat, and they applied them to all Israel. So how you prepared the utensils, the food you ate, how you prepared the food you ate, all of that stuff, they said had to be obeyed by everybody, and that is how God will come to Israel's rescue. Are you with me on this very big point? A word on table fellowship. Table fellowship back in the day. For us, meals, like, they're important. But back then, meals performed your social status. Meals actually declared who you belonged to and who you didn't belong to. So they, you share social status that, that, that expressed intimacy and fellowship, it expressed trust and acceptance. So when Jesus eats with sinners, this is what he's saying. I am of equal social status with sinners. I am intimate and fellowshipping with sinners. I trust and accept these people. The Pharisees saw table fellowship as a way to express disapproval and rejection. So one scholar says, thus sharing and refusing to share a table in antiquity had a social function expressing approval or disapproval of different modes of behavior. So when Jesus ate with sinners, he was approving of them in the eyes of the Pharisees. Are you with me? Now, the great part about the ministry of Jesus is Jesus eats his way through the book of Luke. And can we get an amen? Like, I'm, I'm fond of that too. So I want to throw like four or five passages at you just real quick. And I'm reading them off of here so I don't have to turn my head. Um, but I want to just make that point. So Luke 7, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Luke 11, when Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went and reclined at the table. So we know that Jesus ate with sinners, tax collectors, and Pharisees. Pretty broad spectrum. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched, Luke 14. Luke 15, now tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around Jesus, but the Pharisees and the, tax, or, and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. He eats his way through Luke. It's fantastic. And, and again, to make the point about the tax collectors, when he looks at Zacchaeus, who is a chief tax collector, is this thing still popping or is this popping? Am I popping? Okay. Thank you. Later, that's right. Later, rabbinical writing says, if tax gatherers enter a house, all that is within it becomes unclean. So for Jesus to go to Zacchaeus's house was to walk into a place that was radioactively unclean for anyone who was considered holy. All right? So you're seeing a trend. Now, because Jesus eats his way through Luke, the Pharisees complain their way through Luke. All right? So several verses of the Pharisees complaining. But when the Pharisees and teachers of the law who belong to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? 
Luke 15, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Eating with them is welcoming them. Notice. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. And even Jesus, he, he actually throws out some of their insults that they have towards him. He actually quotes them and the things they say about his ministry. He says, for John the Baptist came neither eating or drinking. So he was ascetic. And you say, this guy's got a demon because he's so weird. The son of man, reference from Daniel 7 that Jesus applies to himself, came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, what we miss in English is that those two insults, glutton and drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners, are very serious charges that Jesus is leading Israel astray. Glutton and drunkard comes from Deuteronomy 21. So, I mean, think about the text here that's being applied to Jesus. If someone has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him, his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders at the gate of his town. They shall say to the elders, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his town are to stone him to death. You must purge the evil from among you. So they weren't saying to Jesus, hey, Jesus, we really disagree. Hey, Jesus, we think there's a better way. They were saying, Jesus, you are leading all of Israel astray in a, in a way that would demand your death were we to implement this law. Are you with me? And then... When Jesus is called friend of sinners, friend of sinners, that isn't a strong enough word. The, the word means a close associate with, a collaborator with, someone you're intimate with. This is a later rabbinical writing. Be on your guard and be very careful, for you are walking about with your own downfall. Every creature loves its like and every person the neighbor. All living beings associate with their own kind and people stick close to those like themselves. What does a wolf have in common with a lamb no more than the sinner has with the devout? In other words, the Jewish wisdom was you attract people like you are. And so Jesus must be a sinner because he was attracting sinners and tax collectors. Are you with me? All right, now. We're rounding into the point. You did great. I mean, so far. I'm just pretty much reading at this point. So, but yeah, 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 yeah. I know, I know. Incredibly well-trained. All right. So, I want to contrast the Pharisees' method of relating to people and calling people to repentance with Jesus, who relates to people and calls them to repentance. So for the Pharisees, holiness was separation, right? For Jesus, holiness is association, right? He actually eats with the sinners and the tax collectors. He associates with them. He never separates. Jesus communicates acceptance and belonging through his radical table fellowship with all sorts of people. And he overturns all the traditional marker, markers of status. And then here's the big one. 
He engaged with table fellowship. He engaged in table fellowship with people before they repented. Before they repented. And it was his kindness that led to repentance. It was him announcing to Zacchaeus, the most notorious sinner in that region, I must dine with you today that caused Zacchaeus to repent. Correct? Which means, my brothers and sisters, that Jesus scandalized people, the religious people of his day, by who he loved and how he loved them. And that Jesus thought that somehow grace is transformative. And that simply being present and communicating acceptance, significance, and status before they got their act together or repented was a transformative act. Now, the reason we bring all of this up, I hope, is obvious. There is a school of thought in Christianity today that says the most loving thing you can do is tell people the truth, and the way you tell people the truth is you convince them, that you convince them first they're a sinner, and then you show them how Jesus deals with their sin. And do I think there's a time and a place? Absolutely. But I would argue that's more of the Pharisee method than it is the Jesus method. Where Jesus went into the spaces, even the religious spaces, where people were lost, and simply by his presence and kindness, people were transformed. Not all, of course not all, but some. Simply by, and, and here's the point, here's the big point. Jesus did this so scandalously that he was accused of condoning their sin. And I hear that a lot. Well, if I show up to this wedding, I'm condoning their sin. Or if I, if I have lunch with this family member, I'm condoning their sin. And I, I I'm, I'm looking in the New Testament for a place that says the biggest thing you should be worried about is condoning someone else's sin. I search in vain for that text, but I'm surrounded by texts that call us to love our neighbors and our enemies regardless of who they are, what they do, where they are, before they get their act together. And so you and I exist in spaces that aren't officially blessed by the church. And who cares about their blessing? Right, the church of Jesus is so much bigger and more beautiful than the institutions that call themselves churches, right? Even the best ones. So we're part of a kingdom. We're not just part of a church. And so we go into spaces with presence and grace, and we communicate belonging and acceptance before they repent. And that, my friends, is sharing the gospel. If I come from a, a background that says you only share the gospel if you, the words, if you use the word sin and cross, right? That's the only time you share the gospel. And I just don't think that's true. I don't see that in Jesus. Now, we can get into some questions about that, but I, I, I wanna make the big point that if anyone is accusing you of condoning behavior, that doesn't align with kingdom values or purposes, in a lot of instances, that's because you're doing something right. 
Jesus somehow believed that holiness is contagious, not unholiness. And so he lived in a way that communicated belonging and acceptance without having to say, I disagree with you first. Show me the verse that says, I can't love you until I let you know I disagree with you. What it, what that, that's a pharisaical perversion of the scandalous nature of the table fellowship of Jesus. Are you with me? So you guys and me, I, I love, I love gaming. Gaming for me is a spiritual discipline. I mean it. No, no, I mean it. I mean it. I, from about eight to 10, I have to turn my brain off. And if I'm gonna look at something inappropriate online or if I'm gonna overeat, that's when I'm gonna do it. And so for me to go on, and I don't like sitting and watching TV for hours. So for me to go online, play two, two and a half hours of Destiny where I'm doing something, but it's, I'm, I'm not thinking, my brain is slowly turning off, doing something with my hands, I'm not eating, and I'm connecting, that's become a real, and I mean this, it's become a really important part of my life. It matters. And the conversations, you know this better than I do, but the conversations I have with people who identify as part of the LGBTQ plus community, who are truckers and lonely, you know, whose literally only social life is what happens when they stop at a, a truck stop and then get online. I mean, you know this. So I'm not here to announce something that you don't already know or do. I just want to show you how biblical it is, just in case anyone decides to question it. And, and that doesn't mean, of course, we're not concerned about our own holiness, our own purity, and we're watching and discerning, and of course, all of that's true. But I, I, I've come... I've come to be convinced that as the culture war rages in America, um, and we have different factions throwing Bible verses at each other, that the way offered by Jesus, that's neither the way of the zealot, and a power, or the way of the Sadducee accommodation, nor the way of the Essene, which is total withdrawal, nor the way of the Pharisee. Hey guys, we just have to huddle up and condemn people enough so that they'll join our club. But rather the way of Jesus and his presence, that's where I think the good stuff really is. Are you with me?